morning, guys. If you could open a Bible to Psalm 51, uh, that's where we're going to be at this morning. Um, I've wondered this week if you've ever been in a place where you've covered something up and you've tried to, to bury it deep and to protect it and to not have it be exposed. But maybe you, you reach the point where you're like, I got to get this out into the light. Or, or somebody actually exposed you for what you were trying to hide. Have you ever been in a place like that ever in your life? Uh, as the story goes, back in 1991, there was a businessman living in Japan, and he decided to send out 1,000 letters to 1,000 random business people. And that letter that he sent out to these people that he didn't know had two short, simple sentences to it. The, the letter just said, I know what you've done, send money. So it's, I know, I know what you've done, send money. He didn't know these people, he didn't know anything about them. But people, one after another, began to send him money. And by the time his fraud was found out, this guy had made a ton of it. He had made a ton of it. It's actually really sobering to think about how each of these people that replied to his message that sent him money, they, they had this guilty conscience, didn't they? And about what we can only make guesses, but they had buried some guilt deep down. They had tried to keep it hidden to the extent that they were willing to send a stranger money after only reading two simple sentences. Right? They felt really guilty. Guys, guilt is very real. I mean, it's definitely not fun to talk about our guilt, but it is very real. And there's been many people over the years, many philosophers, especially in the last hundred years, that have really led us astray, if we're not thinking clearly enough. And there's people like Sigmund Freud, who, um, who said that our subconscious is the source of our behavior. So it's, it's really our past influences that are creating our behaviors or are causing us to behave certain ways. And then you have people like Pavlov who said, we're just a series of reflexes. And so it's really our genetics and our genetic background that just causes us to basically, in a knee-jerk sort of way, respond to our surroundings. And the common thing between ideas like those two ideas is that they destroy any idea of personal responsibility for our actions. They make the idea of guilt feel like utter nonsense, right? Why should you be guilty? You can blame your background. You can blame your genetics. They, they turn us into mere victims when it comes to our guilt. And guys, the Bible has a very different view than that. Uh, it, it pulls no punches when it talks about sin and guilt. The Bible says in the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that would be all of us. So each one of us has good reason to feel guilty. And here in Psalm 51, we see David coming face to face with God and his guilt. We see underneath the heading of Psalm 51, this inscription, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here's the backstory to Psalm 51. This is why this psalm is being written, right? You can read about this story that this psalm is referring to in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And in that, in that book, we see that David had sinned grievously, right? He's the king of Israel. He'd grievously sinned. He had taken another man's wife, got her pregnant, arranged her husband's death, and then for about a year acted like he had done nothing wrong. Like nothing wrong. And then the prophet Isaiah, 
or sorry, the, the, the Nathan, the prophet, comes to him in chapter 12 and tells him this sort of parable. And through telling David this parable, it exposes David. And David confesses in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And so here we see Psalm 51, sort of the, the aftermath of that event. And David is coming back to God with a broken heart. So this morning, I just want us to walk through this pretty iconic psalm by asking four questions. The first question is, how can I approach God? Secondly, how can I be honest with God? Third, how can I be accepted by God? And fourth, how do I go on now with God? How do I go on with God? So here's the first question in our text. How can I approach God? We see this in verses 1 and 2. Let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Just notice how David approaches God. He approaches God based upon God's character. We see that in verse 1. He doesn't say, have mercy on me, God, I'm, because I'm not as bad as I seem. He doesn't say, have mercy on me, God, because my intentions are actually pretty good and I promise that I'm going to do a lot better next time. Right? He's not reasoning with God. He's not trying to bargain with God. He's simply asking for mercy because, why? Because he knows who God is. Right? His approach of God is based upon God's character. That The word in the first line, it can also be translated, show me grace, show grace to me. It's a different word from the word translated mercy that we see down in the third line of the psalm. So David starts out here by appealing to three things about God, that God is gracious, that God is loving, and that God is merciful. And we see that triplet attribute of God paired up with how he sees himself, which is what? He sees his transgressions. He sees his iniquity. He sees his sin. Guys, we approach God not because of what we are like, despite what we are like. Right? We approach God because of what God is like. That's, that's why we approach God. So I want to ask you this morning, is this how you see God? Is this how you see God in this way that, that's described here in these first few verses? When, you, when you're overcome with your guilt right, from your sin, is this, is this how you view God? Or is your perception of God sort of like he's, you know, this, this kind of stern old man that you have to walk on eggshells around and you're just waiting to receive sort of the fist of fury or something, you know, for your actions, right? Do you approach God in that way or avoid God in that way? Or do you approach God because you actually know who God is? Because God is famous. He's famous for his grace. He is why we can approach him. He is why we can repent. No one has ever come to God and said to God, I hear, God, that you are gracious, that you are loving, and that you're merciful. I, I see Jesus' work on the cross for me, so let me just lay bare everything. Let me, let me ex- have it all exposed. Let me confess it all. No one's ever come to God in that way, and God has refused that person, right? No one has ever, ever been refused by God who's come to him in that way, and no one ever will. So before we even dive in further, I just want to ask you, what, what are you waiting for this morning? If you're in a spot like this, where you overcome with some sin or guilt, what are you waiting for? Go to God. 
Secondly, we see the second question, how is it that I can be honest with God? How can I be honest with God? We read this in verses 3 through 6. Let's read this together. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Uh, David is, is very much upfront with God about his sin. He can't get it out of his mind. I mean, just look at verse 3, right? He says, my sin is ever before me, right? Guilt is like that, isn't it? It kind of keeps you awake at night sometimes. It, it makes you miserable and grumpy when it's, when it's kind of on your mind, you know? But here's a big question. Here's the big question. What is it about sin that makes it sin? You ever ask yourself that? Well, verse 4 kind of lets us in on the answer, because what does he say? I've done what is evil in your sight. Right? Sin is determined by the sight of God and what God determines is right and wrong. Right? right? Evil here, it's, in any time we use it, it's a really humiliating word, isn't it? I mean, we'd rather say things like, I screwed up, or I, I messed up, or I made a mistake, or I had a really bad day. That's what we want to say. I mean, when was the last time any of us used this serious of a word to describe what we've done, where you've sinned in some way, whatever level category from the greatest sin in your mind to the, the least sin, and you've called it out and you said that was evil. I mean, when was, when was the last time you used a word like this? But guys, if God is gracious and loving and merciful, we can stop lying to ourselves with these kind of buttery, soft words, right? We can trust God and use very clear and direct words. It's, it's the only way that you and I will ever get free. And quite honestly, it's the only way that we can truly confess and be honest with God. See, sin is what is done against God. And, and I'm not sure that we always think of it that way. I mean, just think back to the story of Joseph when He's with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he resists that temptation. And what does he say in that moment? Do you remember in the book of Genesis? He says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? That's what's on his mind. He doesn't say, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against Potiphar? No, he says, sin against God. And of course, you and I know, we, we wrong people, we sin against people, and when we do that, we need to confess and we need forgiveness, right? We still need that. But fundamentally, we're being shown here that sin is against God. It's, it's God's law that we break at the end of the day. How is this so? Well, here's an incomplete example, but it might help a little bit. So, like in my house, let's imagine, and this is gener generally true, that we haven't had a family meeting about this or anything, but um, if I tell my kids, hey, in this family, we don't hit each other, okay? We, we love each other, and so one way that we express our love is by not hitting each other. If I, with that parental authority, gave the law of the land to my kids, and then in a moment's notice, they hit the other person, yes, they sinned against their sibling, right? But fundamentally, they, they sinned against me, didn't they? Because by the parental authority that I had, I, I, I told them this is how we're going to function. This is the created order, I guess, of our family. And in a moment, they said, you know what? I'm going to rebel against my father's rule as a, as a parental person in my, my home life. 
and I'm going to hit my sibling, right? This is, this is kind of uh, how this works, okay? In a much truer way, morality is God's morality. What's right and wrong is what God says. And we, therefore, are guilty before God, and it's only God that can forgive us. So we need to confess to God, right? This is what confession is. It's saying the same thing about myself that God says about me. It's having the view of myself that God has of me. So David says in verse 4, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is confession. That's what this is. David needs forgiveness, but he can't forgive himself, right? You know the one person you can never forgive is yourself. Contrary to what people today might actually tell you, right? That's just not true. What you most need to hear then is the thing that you can't say to yourself, your sins are forgiven. I can't forgive my own sins because I don't sin against myself fundamentally. I sin against God. It's only God that can say that to you. So here's David, and he's very real with himself before God. These are big sins, aren't they? But these aren't isolated sins. David knows way better than that. Look at verse 5. What does he say? I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We need to remember this when we go to God in confession, when we're honest with God, right? We're not sinners because we, we sin, right? We sin because we are sinners, Right? We're born with a sinful nature. This is the problem of the human race, that we are born sinners. That, so all these issues that we see in our own lives or in our, our homes right now, potentially, or just all over the world, fundamentally, we have a sin problem. We are sinners from birth. We are not sinners because we do sin. We, are, we do sin because we are sinners. So how can I be honest with God? Well, I don't come saying... God, I, I, I did this sin or that sin, and it's just kind of a little bit out of character. You know, I screwed up for a moment. No, I come and I say, this is my character. Right? We don't just confess an isolated sin. We confess our sinfulness, and that's what David's doing here. So how can I approach God? Well, on the basis of his character. How can I be honest with God? Well, it's by agreeing with God about my character. Then we get to the most important question, question three. How can I be accepted by God? We see the answer to this in verses 7 through 12. Let's read this together. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. You ever asked, why should God forgive me? You ever asked that? If you're anything like me, you often might think, what would God want to do with a person like me? I'm sure David felt this way. I mean, he had committed murder. He had committed adultery, which these were both capital offenses in the society over which he was king. But here's David asking for something that he doesn't deserve. Verse 7, he says, what? Purge me, cleanse me with hyssop. He says, wash me. Honestly, guys, I think we're a little too quick to say we want to get what we deserve. You know, we often just, I deserve this. I want to get that. 
But at the end of the day, what we deserve is God's judgment. But the gospel is all about us receiving what we don't deserve. After the prophet Nathan confronted David, Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Nathan declares that to David upon his confession. And we come here to verses 7 through 8 of the psalm, and we see this confidence that David has in God accepting him. It's really interesting. Our English Bibles water this down, but what David is literally saying is, you will wash me, you will cleanse me, you will let me hear joy. And we might go, how? On the basis of what, David? I mean, how can you be so confident? And then in my case, how can I be so confident to declare those? You will do this. You will do that. How can I do that? Well, verse 7 is the very center of the prayer here of David. He says, you will purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. This is language of, of getting it all out, right? Getting all the sin out. It's wiping the slate clean, okay? I don't know if you've ever fooled around with an Etch-a-Sketch before. Uh, maybe I just dated myself. I'm not sure, but um, man, an Etch-a-Sketch is that toy that looks like a television set. It has these two little white knobs and uh, you, you move the knobs and it, it sort of draws pictures and I'm not very artistic on these things. I'm, at best, I can do a, a staircase or something like that. And you can, you can sketch whatever fits your fancy, you know, if you're able to. But the, the toy was not really made for people like me. I'm not great at it. And so often when I would draw something, you, if you're anything like me, you might feel embarrassed by what you produced. And so it's, it's nice. It's a great product because what you can do is you can just tip the screen and everything kind of is wiped clean. It vanishes, right? It's a simple illustration, but that's a lot like what God is doing with David's sin here and what God does with our sin. When he's saying these things, when he goes down further and he says, blot out my iniquity. Guys, through the course of our earthly existence, we sketch an ugly scenario of destruction and rebellion and ingratitude and jealousy and lust. There it is, vividly imprinted on the screen of our souls. But when we confess our sin, God's loving and gracious hand tips the toy and the slate is clean. No matter how often we return to deface with ugly pictures of hatred and, and unrighteous anger and pride and envy, God is faithful, right, to tip the screen. Why? Well, it's because of this hyssop, right? Unfortunately, this is a bit over our heads, so we, we just get to this word hyssop and we just go, what's that? I don't know. We kind of move on. But really, what is hyssop? It's an important thing here. It's just this little shrub. But God's people in David's day would have known what this is all about. They would have looked back on their history as a nation and thought about the Exodus story when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And what happened in that story is we see in chapter 1 how Pharaoh declares that all the, the firstborn sons of, of Egypt or of Israel should die. And so that happens tragically. See Moses spared in that. But then this final plague comes and God declares that he's going to send a very similar plague. That the firstborn sons all over the land of Egypt are going to die as the angel of death passes over the nation. But he tells his people, if you will take a lamb and you will sacrifice it and take the blood of that animal that has died, and with hyssop, basically, wipe the blood over the doorposts of that house. The angel will pass over that house. And because the animal died, the firstborn son will live. 
right? This is the story that we see. Even though it seems gory, they would take the hyssop, they would dip it in blood, and they would put it on the doorposts. It meant that the lamb had been given and spared the firstborn son in the house. And that was the basis for all the sacrifices that you see in the history of the Old Testament for God's people. As this is what David is saying. He's saying, you will cleanse me with the blood. You will cleanse me because an innocent lamb died in my place. He doesn't think God is going to overlook his sin and sweep it under the rug. He doesn't think God's just going to let him off the hook. Right? He's not naive and ignorant to think that way. That would make God unjust. No, the punishment for David's sin falls on the animal and David is free. But fundamentally, that, that didn't really work, did it? Right? No animal could pay for a human being's sin. Right? It was all, all these sacrifices, they were all just pointing towards, they were all anticipating the real sacrifice the true and final sacrifice. They were pointing our eyes towards that sacrifice. And then we see in the Gospels, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And what is the first thing that is said about him? John the Baptist says to him as he's coming out to the Jordan River, Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus comes to die on the cross and his blood, you guys, is wiped over the doorposts of our soul so that we can go free. And so now we sing in pretty much any wonderful hymn in history, words like, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God forgives us because of Jesus, but not only that, David continues and says that he changes us. Look in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart. David says, Create in me. And with this word create, he's asking for nothing less than a miracle by the hand of God. It's a term for what God alone can do. That's what this word is communicating here. This is the same word used in the creation account in the beginning of our Bibles, right? When God creates the world. And so if God could create the world, then do you think he could create a clean heart, a renewed right spirit? in you? Right, do you here, here's the thing, you guys. When we get to a point in the passage like this, we really got to start asking ourselves this question. Do you really want to change? Do you really want to be changed? Right, this is the pivotal point here. Do you, just, do you just not want to feel guilty anymore? Do you hate that burden of your guilt? And so, The idea of confession to you is just, you know, I want to get this off my back, but then I can kind of go on as normal. Or do you confess and go to God and desire for him to accept you because you want to be different? See, David wanted to be different. He wanted to be different, so he prays this. Why does David want to be different? Why? What motivated him? The answer, he wanted God. We just look in verse 11. What does he say? Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your spirit, your Holy Spirit from me. Guys, we need to learn that we will never be free from our sin until we hate our sin. And we will never hate our sin and want to repent unless we want God. See, when we sin, when we hold on to that sin and we bury it down deep and we carry that guilt, It's really God who we're missing out on. 
the fellowship of his spirit that we've grieved, that's what we're missing. Right? That's what we're lacking. Right? That's where the joy comes from. So, so here's, I mean, how, how does God accept us? How are we acceptable to God? How are we changed by God? How do we not lose the Spirit of God? It's, it's because of Jesus, it's because of that it's the hyssop, right? That leads us to the last question. All right, how do I go on now with God? All right, verses 13 through 19, let's read these together. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices." In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Guys, all of us at some time or another, to varying degrees, we struggle with the fear and the apprehension that perhaps God has not dealt fully and finally with our sin. We read in Scripture about the joy of our salvation, like here in verse 12. We've tasted it a bit here and a bit there. But there is often this unshakable sense of condemnation that simply won't go away. It haunts us, it taunts us, and it wants us to believe that there's simply no way God could look with love and approval on us. Let me, let me tell you why we think this way. Let me, let me tell you why you aren't living in the fullness of the joy and peace and satisfaction in your relationship with God that you so desperately desire sometimes. Well, it comes down to one thing and one thing only. You and I have failed to believe what God himself says that he has done with our sins, right? Guilt suffocates our joy. What consumes us often is what we have done in our sinning. We think about that. What ought to consume us, especially after we've been accepted by God through repentance and confession, Right? What ought to consume us is grateful meditation on what God has done, not on what we've done. So here's the thing. We get to these verses here, 14 and 15, and we ask, how do you recognize someone who's forgiven and knows it? Like, how do you notice someone who's forgiven and they know they're forgiven? Well, here they, they can't stop telling people about it, can they? Look at verse 14. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Is this not what the Christian life of worship is? It's celebrating what God has done. It's not trying to get God to do things or bring ourselves to a certain place. It's, it's worshiping God and being grateful for what He has done. It's a response to God's revelation and God's gracious activity in our lives. And then we read verses 16 through 17 from those verses, which says what? For you will not delight in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David here, he's not trivializing the sacrifices that are offered in the tabernacle, but he is saying that he could go through all the right motions but have the wrong heart, and that's not what God wants. He says, a broken heart you will not despise. Well, why this? 
Well, imagine those moments where you're in a tension in a relationship. Maybe that's happened to you, somebody in your home lately. I don't know. You know that you were wrong, but you're not like broken over it, but you don't like the tension. You don't like how you feel bad about it or there's a strain. So you go to the person, you say, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry I did that. And that person responds by saying they don't believe you and they don't accept your apology. What's your response? What's your response? What do you do? You say, well, fine, whatever. I said I was sorry, you deal with it, blah, 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 whatever, okay? How do I know this? Because I've said stuff like this before, you know? What's going on in that situation? Well, I'm, I'm not broken, am I? I'm not contrite, am I? I'm just trying to alleviate some guilt so that I can move on with my life. I'm trying to say the right thing so that there can be some general peace and we can continue on. Guys, a broken heart isn't defensive, though. It's not protective of itself, right? It's, it has nothing to protect anymore. It's not put together. It's broken, isn't it? It's seeing you deserve the worst. That's what a broken spirit is. And then when God gives you his best, and grace is really, really sweet, and it's powerfully transformative. That's when Jesus forgives us by his blood, we, we do not high-five him. Okay, that's not what a contrite and broken spirit does when we are forgiven by God, we don't just give him a fist bump or something like that. We are humbled at the sight of what it cost him at the cross. So that now, upon reception of that grace, we desire to live fully for him now. We begin to worship. And that's the key of these verses, isn't it? This is the activity that we see here in these final verses. The theme is worship. Worship from a broken heart. We see personal worship in these verses. And then the last two verses, that personal worship moves to corporate worship. And we're seeing language of having the the walls rebuilt in the city of God, which is not just merely talking about physical walls. It's talking about a, a people, the people of God being restored and unified in their repenting and worshiping of God. So I need to approach God. I need to confess. I need Jesus to be accepted. But then what? In our ongoing life with God, right, true repentance, it results in worship. It results in worship. Guys, whether you see it or not, what's fundamentally true about our struggles with our sin and burying them deep down is that we've worshipped our way into that sin. We looked to something to give us what only God can give us, and that thing over-promises and under-delivers every time, right? We, we didn't listen to God. We thought we knew better, right? We, we, we let our hearts run after something else. We worshiped our way into our sin. And so now we don't just confess and agree to have our guilt alleviated and, and hope to be accepted by God and then continue to go on with our lives. We don't just create a, a vacuum now. That thing is going to be filled with something because I am made to worship, So I've worshiped my way into that sin, and now we see here at the end, what's David doing? He's worshiping his way out. He's got the right heart. He's praising God with his mouth. He's he's fundamentally worshiping God. As I hope you know that you do need to repent. I do too. Being a Christian isn't moving on from repentance. As Martin Luther famously said, the entire Christian life is one of repentance, right? 
Right? The gospel doesn't remove the need for us to repent, but it provides for that need in Jesus. This is who we have. And let's be honest, we probably need to do some repenting right now. Right? We were getting squeezed. We're getting knocked around and there is sin coming out of us, right? And we can blame our circumstances. We can, we can blame the prospects of our, you know, blurry future. We can blame other people, but, but I'm doing the sin, right? I don't just blame my genetics. I don't just blame my upbringing, whatever it might be. I don't blame the circumstances. I'm the one. Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Remember that? The other day we were having a, this was weeks ago, but we were having an elder meeting over Zoom and my wife brought in for me a freshly brewed, topped off cup of coffee. I was really excited and I reached over to grab that cup of coffee and I knocked it off the ledge and it spilled all over the carpet in the center of our room. Like there was no way to cover this thing up. It was very, uh, it was very bad, okay? And for days I just would come in the room and I would notice the stain. I couldn't blot it out. You know, I just, I noticed it and I was like, man, I don't know how we're ever going to get rid of this thing and how we're going to cover this up and, and all this kind of thing. And my wife rightfully asked the question that all of us would ask me in that moment. How in the world did that happen? How did that happen? We all know how it happened, but like we still ask, right? How did it happen? How did coffee get all over the floor? And I said, I accidentally knocked it over, which is me being honest. That's true. But fundamentally, the truth is, coffee spilled all over the floor. Why? Because there was coffee in the cup. If the cup was empty and I knocked over the cup, I don't have a problem. If water's in the cup and I knock it over, there's not coffee on the floor. If there's jello in the soup, whatever, you can dream it up, right? Whatever's in the cup, if it's not coffee, coffee's not going to spill on the floor, is it? My, my, my reckless, you know, actions, my circumstances created a situation where the coffee came out, but it was already in the cup. That's what Jesus is saying when he talks about out of the abundance of the heart, right? So guys, if I'm getting knocked around a bit, if I'm squeezed by my difficult circumstances, then what comes out of me is not love, it's not joy, it's not peace, it's not patience, it's not kindness, it's not goodness, it's not faithfulness or self-control. I can point the finger, but when I come face to face with God, that finger gets redirected back to its rightful spot and it's pointed at me. I just got knocked over. I just got squeezed a little bit and that sin came out and I did that. I'm responsible for that. That came from me. And so here's the thing, guys. The call of the Christian life and a call on a day like today is for us to come clean. It's to, it's to come forward. It's to be exposed and not to be overly afraid of that because we have a God. We can approach God knowing who He is, and that's why we can approach Him. And a spirit of repentance, guys, in a church, you can think of it as like the secret ingredient to a really, really, really delicious recipe. And when people who've, who've never heard about Jesus get a taste of a church that is constantly repenting, they go, hmm, that's, that's different. That's really good. What is that? That's not normal. As the gospel does not create superior people, the gospel creates really humble people with 
badly calloused knees, who trust Jesus enough to face themselves honestly and own up to their sin. And as we do that, our Savior lifts that burden off of our shoulders and he sets us free so that we can run into his arms, not back to in a different direction. I want to leave us with this uh, benediction in Romans 8, because I know on weeks like this, um, we need the good news of Jesus, right? The, the gospel does expose our need for a Savior, but it provides that Savior. And uh, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are accepted because of Him. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's my prayer, that we be people who are repenting this week because we are free. We're longing to be free, and we're realizing and are repenting that God is setting us free in Christ. Mm-hmm.